0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we'll hear from Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter. The day after his State of the County address, we're gonna talk about how the county's doing, what his plans are for the next year, and why transit, which was expected to be a big part of his speech, didn't get the anticipated attention. Then State Health Commissioner Natasha Bagdasarian is going to join to discuss the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR.
1: Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills.
2: Educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu.
3: I believe in the power of our people. That together, Oakland together, we can leverage our strengths to address our challenges in all ways moving forward.
0: That is the voice of Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter during his State of the County speech last night. Oakland County, of course, is in the middle of a pretty dramatic political transformation, which is now years in the making. The once Republican-dominated county now has a Democratic executive in Coulter. It has a Democratic-led county commission and a voter base that now leans pretty blue. In statewide and national elections that has also come with some huge challenges ahead though can the county adapt to new climate realities will it effectively lead efforts to tear down barriers to public transit and housing is the changing face of Oakland something that Oakland County government can better address For years, if not decades, we've thought of Oakland County as kind of monolithic. It is the wealthiest county in the state of Michigan, but for years we've acted as though there's only wealthy people in Oakland County. The truth, of course, is that it's a really diverse place and getting more diverse economically, ethnically, geographically. How does Oakland County government respond? to those changes? What are the things that it needs to do to make sure that everybody there experiences the joy and opportunity that we expect in the places where we live? That's where we begin the conversation today. And here to talk about all of those questions and his speech last night is Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter. Dave, welcome back to Detroit Today. Oh, I think we have got a little... Stephen, oh, oh Stephen, I'm sorry are. I
3: had I had you on mute, my friend. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The, the, the COVID uh, dread. Uh,
0: I apologize. It's great to be with you. Sorry about the mute. <laughs> no worries. No worries at all. Uh, before we start, uh, my Facebook... Tells me that today is your birthday. So uh, I want to say happy uh, it is. birthday. <laughs> Thank you,
3: Stephen. I appreciate it.
0: That's pretty cool. Just a day after the Ides of March. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if I had been born one day later, my parents tell me I would have been named Patrick. Patrick, uh, of course. Patrick's Day. But my mom didn't <laughs> like the day. So she told my dad she'd only name me that if I was actually born on the day. And I was uh, day early, which he where she did on purpose <laughs> that's, uh,
0: right. that's right so let's start here for folks who didn't hear your speech last night talk about what the biggest takeaways you think are about how the county is doing here in 2022 yeah
3: well our county like the state and the country has been really challenged over the last couple of years obviously from COVID and a whole host of things but what i tried to lay out last night was a vision for the next five years. We, you know, it's a strategic plan. It's a roadmap. And, you know, I know sometimes strategic planning and goals and vision statements can make your eyes roll. But what I tried to do is give people a sense of what are the things that I think we have to be really intentional about and focused on uh, over the next five years for us to build on the foundation that we have in Oakland County, because there's a lot of things that could still be improved. And so the reason I adopted that sort of slogan, all ways in two words, all ways moving forward is because we've got a lot to do and we need to do it in all ways. So it can't just be about, you know, economic development. It can't just be about, you know, health care. And it can't just be in the cities. It's got to be in the suburbs and the rural areas. So bringing us together and trying to, to create a, a path. And by the way, a measurable path. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a data guy and I've been a little surprised And how few of our programs actually have really good, solid measurements and data behind them. And so we've created that, and starting last night on our website, which is oakgov.com, residents can go on the website now and see what we're tracking, what the goals are, and keep us accountable for them.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So let's talk some about these challenges that face the county in the next few years. You unveiled a new strategic plan for the next five years and said in your speech last night that you want uh, residents and and the rest of the county, of course, to hold you accountable that way. Uh, Let's talk about the the benchmarks for success that you have in mind when you want to carry out this plan. Yeah.
3: Well, let's look at um, our business economic development plan. You know, it's great when we get a General Motors, Uh, to come and make an incredibly large investment, $4 billion at the Orient plant. And I love that. I celebrate that. But the truth of the matter is most of our businesses in Oakland County are small businesses. And they've been through a devastating two years. They continue to need help. And even before that, I thought there was more that we could do as a county to promote our entrepreneurs, people who want to start or grow a business here and, in particular, because you mentioned this, you know, sort of in your intro, uh, minority-owned, women-owned, veteran-owned businesses, some people who have not always felt the same connection to services in Oakland County and felt that they had the same access. I want to make sure that we're doing that. So one of the measures on our website is going to be minority-owned businesses. And how many do we have? And what are we doing to support them? Uh, and that's, again, what I mean by always. ways. So, I want General Motors. I want all kinds of businesses here and and, and good paying jobs. But I want everybody to feel like they have an equal shot of success
0: here in Oakland County. Hmm. I'm talking with Dave Coulter, who is the county executive in Oakland County, our wealthiest county here in the state of Michigan. Uh, He delivered his state of the county speech last night. We're talking about what he said what he thinks about the current state of the county, what his plans are for the next year. And in a little bit, we're going to talk about transit, which uh, a lot of us were anticipating might play a bigger role in Dave's speech. Uh, Got uh, a little bit of mention, but not as much as I think we were anticipating. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Do you live or work in Oakland County? Do you think... The county is heading in the right direction. And what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that Oakland County faces moving forward? Uh, What role do you hope Oakland County will play in the region to solve some of our systemic problems here in southeast Michigan? Also, give us a call. Let us know if you listened to or watched Dave Coulter's speech last night. What did you think of it? Uh, What did you take away from his address about the state of the county? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Dave, as I said, you mentioned transit in the speech, but it only got a really brief mention and there were a lot of people i think who were expecting more and this morning on twitter uh on our feed we're getting a lot of folks who have real questions about uh, our commitment to to better transit uh this idea that uh that we could take another go at funding regional transit here in southeast michigan and of course the the recent news that Auburn Hills, a pretty critical piece of the transit picture in Oakland County, has decided to opt out of the suburban uh, bus system. So so first address uh, what what place transit had in your speech last night and why, uh, and then we'll talk about some of the other broader issues. All
3: right. And um, sorry to disappoint uh, to <laughs> you, Stephen, and some of my other listeners. I certainly didn't mean to. It, it, it's a little frustrating. It's it's almost like um uh the lgbt community saying i don't do enough for that i'd be like i'm i'm i am all in let me just start by saying i you know i started my career uh in 2003 by talking about the need for greater mass transit in Metro Detroit, we're still, all these years later, one of the only, if not the only, major metropolitan area that doesn't have a mass transit system, and that has to change. Um, I think maybe some of that expectation came from, as you mentioned, the Auburn Hill situation where they voted to opt out as smart, where they're not out because I'm not sure they have the ability to opt out uh, in the form that they did. Uh, and that's disappointing to me. Uh, but, but I want to make sure we're, we're distinguishing between two issues, because there's mass transit, and I'm all in. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan, and I continue to work with the partners in the region, like Wayne County and Detroit and Washtenaw, the folks that want to do something with us. We continue to work on that. And then there's this notion of, of the smart millage. And there's been some discussion at our board of commission level uh, that we should go from not allowing our communities to opt out of smart bus service. Uh, uh, people have thought and I've said over the years that the Swiss cheese approach that we take to bus service um, does not serve our residents well mm-hmm. but I just want to distinguish that that's not a transit system so what's being discussed at the board level is an all opt-in bus service mm-hmm. but it doesn't get us to transit so the reason transit didn't get more attention last night is just is simple we're simply we don't have yet although we work, we're working on it, a, a plan that's been agreed upon and signed off by, you know, the, the counties and the cities and the region, uh, in part because COVID really slowed us down. You know, um, you know, if you talk to the folks at SMART and DDOT, they're really kind of scrambling and struggling to get the ridership back to where it was. And we know that a transit system, a strong transit system, is going to require good bus systems. So working with SMART and our other partners, We're going to have a plan. I've said this before, uh, Stephen. In in this term of mine, I want to put a transit, a mass transit plan before the voters. But I just want to distinguish that from this other issue, which is uh, whether a community should be able to opt out of bus service.
0: Mm. So let's make this clear. You don't believe that the current system, which allows different communities to decide on their own whether they're going to participate in the suburban bus system. You think that that system should change? In other words, you, you believe everyone ought to have to, to opt in. Is that right? Well, I do. Uh, I think that's a stronger system. That's the way it's worked in Macomb for years. Mm-hmm. You know, there's
3: no opt-outs in Macomb. And I've always thought, even back in the days when I was on the county commission, that that makes a lot more sense. Now, uh, that would have to go to the voters. And that would have to be put on the ballot by the board of commissioners. So there's going to have to be some discussions and I can assure you there are. I think that's why there's a renewed interest in this right now um, on what's going to be the value proposition for them. What kind of services are those new areas going to get? And, you know, you're going to have to work with smart on that. What can you provide for additional revenues? And and, and so you know the plan is still being talked about with SMART and with those communities. Can you can you make a value proposition that 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 tells the voters that that's a good idea? But ultimately, that's going to be a question for the voters.
0: Hmm. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. Call and tell us what you think uh, about uh, Dave Coulter's state of the county speech. Tell us what you think. About transit uh, in Oakland County, the the continuing challenges that we have uh, with with um, with with transit, uh, and uh, give us a call and just let us know what you think about the state of the county here in 2022. Um, before we get to some calls, uh, Dave, I, I do want to talk about this uh, regional transit authority funding problem that we have. Uh, Uh As you point out, we're not in a place where we've got everybody on the same page in terms of taking another run at that. Why is that true? And I guess give us a sense of what the conversations look like. Are you talking with city officials, with Mark Hackle in Macomb County, with folks in Washtenaw County about how we put this all together or is this kind of a back burner or dead issue in the sense that there isn't an active conversation about
3: it? No, it's not a dead issue. Um, I can assure you, it, if I if I had a, a mass transit plan ready to roll out, I'd have talked about it last night, but uh, I hope that people don't take my lack of, you know, unveiling a plan. It can't just be my plan, right? It's gotta be, I think it's gotta be a regional plan. It's, it needs to come, buy-in of our boards of commissions in the various counties, the leaders, the, the the folks who care about transit and who have been so active in it. And so, uh, no, my commitment hasn't changed to that. It really hasn't. Um, uh, and I think we can get there. As, as I mentioned, I, and I don't use it as an excuse, but but COVID really challenged the way public transportation was, was delivered and the services and, and financially and all, all the like. And so, um, you know, that has to be a key part of it. But uh, I'm, I'm as committed as ever uh, to doing mass transit in this region. And, and let me just say, right before COVID, just I mean, I'm not using COVID as an excuse, right before COVID, we took a bite at this apple, again, trying to create an authority where we could carve out Macomb County out of the RTA. Because Macomb, frankly, said, I don't think we're, our residents are, are uh, inclined to make this move at this point. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of us that being Mike Duggan and Warren Evans and the folks in Washington. I said, okay, we'll go forward with a, a, a different plan that at this point, in phase one, let's call it, doesn't include Macomb. Uh, and that's what we tried to do. Why did it fail? I, I think here's the one of the lessons that I learned from that experience was we didn't have um, a good enough plan and the value proposition to the people about what it would mean and what it was. So we were more focused on the funding mechanism and the and the legal mechanisms than we were on selling people with a, a vision of what that plan was. And because we didn't have it, it was easy to attack it. And so, frankly, Republicans in North Oakland County, they started the attack, but others joined in. Next thing you know, they, they killed our ability to do it in Lansing by talking about, outrageous things about how much it'll cost and all this stuff. And when, the, and when the conversation is just about cost, our message gets lost. So we have to have a plan that proves the value and people can see
0: uh, will provide value for their communities. And I think we can do that.
3: I really do. I, I just don't think we're there yet.
0: Okay. Coming up, we're going to continue this conversation with Oakland County executive Dave Coulter about his state of the county address and the many issues Challenging Oakland County. We're going to talk about housing next uh, and want to continue to hear from you on social media and on the phones. 313 577 1019 is the number. That's 313 577 1019. Call and tell us what you thought of Dave Coulter's speech last night, what you think of the current state of the county. What issues would you like to see Oakland County government focusing on? Pam, or I'm sorry, Linda in Pontiac, uh, we'll start with you next if you want to join her again. is the number on the phones. We've also got a number of social media comments that will add to the conversation as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. W D E T M I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Dave Coulter, the executive of Oakland County. Last night, he delivered his State of the County address. We're talking about what he said, what the state of the county looks like right now, and a number of different issues uh, that continue to challenge the county as it changes, changes economically, changes politically, changes demographically want to hear from you as well during the conversation if you live in Oakland County if you work in Oakland County give us a call and tell us what you think of its current state did you listen to Dave's speech last night tell us what you thought of it uh, what do you think of the issues that are challenging uh, Oakland County as it changes 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones that's 313 you can also go to social media comments there and we'll work into the conversation that way Uh, dave you mentioned something significant that's happening in oakland county right now related to housing i want to listen to a clip from your speech last night
3: unfortunately some of our residents are facing even more dire conditions they need access to safe and affordable housing our neighborhood and housing development leadership is working with the board of commissioners and our treasurer, Robert Wittenberg, to create a new housing trust fund. By providing gap funding to developers, we will ensure that our residents have safe and affordable opportunities to rent or buy a home.
0: So this is an issue that I think a lot of people don't associate with Oakland County, as I was (laughs) saying in the open of the show. People think that this is it is the wealthiest county in the state, and they think that means it's it's monolithic, but it is really economically diverse, and there are a lot of people who do need help with affordable housing so give us a sense of what this problem looks like in Oakland County, and what this proposal that you're making would do. yeah, you
3: know um you're right, you think of a place like Oakland and you think okay it's affluent, but it's also expensive to live here for everybody. So, uh, you know, I saw a statistic that 40% of the people in Oakland County are technically housing insecure, which means they spend more than 30% of their household income on their housing needs. Um, And that that goes across the economic spectrum. Uh, You can be a middle class or upper middle class person and be spending too much on housing. But what we're going to address is the lower and moderate income folks. And we have a lot of them in Oakland County, as you pointed out. We're a very diverse county and we have lots of economic uh, ranges here. So I announced last night a housing trust fund. And what we're going to try to do with that money is incentivize developers to add more affordable housing for low and and moderate income people so that people who maybe have been born or raised in Oakland County or have moved here and want to stay here. Don't get priced out. I mean, keep in mind, I was the mayor of Ferndale for nine years when I started that you could get any house in town for under a hundred thousand dollars almost. And and now you know, it's off the charts. By the time I was done nine years later, it's all I heard about was how expensive it was and that the people who helped create Ferndale and make it what it was, couldn't afford to live here anymore. And so I don't want to see that happen all over the County. And so, We're going to start with this housing trust fund, and we're going to ask our developers, uh, frankly, to create more affordable housing. And uh, and we're going to incentivize them to do that.
0: Uh, Dave, in 2018, the county got in trouble from HUD for discrimination against uh, using federal funds to help renters who are disproportionately black, Hispanic, and Asian. Is this resolution in some way a reaction to that? Is that what you're trying to fix in some ways?
3: Um. And that, I just want to be clear that we got that report before I was executive, but I saw that report and I was disgusted by it. And we've had a lot of reaction to that report. And in fact, we've changed a lot of what we're doing in our housing area to address it. The main problem with that, uh, that was identified in that report is uh, the the HUD dollars, the federal dollars that we had for lower and moderate income people, every dollar of it went to home owners. Well, rentals are a huge portion of the market, and it, it, it intentionally discouraged rental properties. Um, and so we've changed that. Our programs are now available for rental and um, home ownership programs and this program. This program uh, will intentionally um, incentivize both um, units to purchase and units to rent. So that 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 it was a it was a devastating report. Frankly, I was very disturbed to see it, and I don't disagree with it. And uh, we didn't object to it. And um, we're we're gonna we've made sure I've made sure that our housing division knows that uh, every policy that we create uh, is going to be looked at through this equity lens, uh, and that's what we're doing now.
0: Okay, again, 3135771019 is the number. Let's go to the phones here. Linda in Pontiac. Linda, what's on your mind? Hi. 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 <laughs> go ahead.
3: Um,
2: so I'm a renter in Pontiac. I've rented here for 10 years. I don't have the privilege of buying my home. I'm hoping that I definitely don't get priced out here. I think rent control is more important than low-income housing because low-income housing, what you're doing is you're just taking low-income people and putting them in one area. Okay, what if we look back at the past, what has that done? That's created like areas where we have like concentrated areas of crime and things like that. It would be better to have rent control than anything. We have people in in Oakland County who own nice houses here and then own multiple houses up north, own multiple rental properties. Rent control would help a lot of the people who are on the ground the most, in my opinion. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Great, great question, Linda. And I think that perspective is so important. Again, Pontiac Mm -hmm. is a place that's a little different than what most people think of when they think... Oakland County, and there are folks there who who struggle with the the idea of being able to afford where they live over a long period of time uh, dave what 's the answer to, to linda 's question here
3: yeah and, and I appreciate the question uh, and it's it 's an important one because, as I said, in every community across this county uh this is happening and and one thing I would mention is that we 're not trying to isolate uh, these projects in one area or you know keep people in 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 just Pontiac or Royal Oak Township, you know, these will be these will be incentives for development across the county. So I I, I agree with her perspective that we don't want to try to isolate or um, uh, folks that are in affordable housing. Um, Rent control is a you know, I I don't know of a city in in Michigan that uses it. It's a pretty dramatic step to address, um, you know, rising rents, which is a very real issue. I mean I think it's a tool in the toolbox but um we haven't explored the tools I think that we have here yet and 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 incentivizing more affordable housing is is one of the ways we're going to get started.
0: Hmm. So we had a caller from Oak Park PAM who couldn't stay on the line but she wanted to start by saying how much she supports and appreciates you and your leadership. Uh, she also notes that Oak Park is a community that struggles with affordable housing especially for residents yeah. of color. And sometimes it's difficult to get city leaders to act. Uh, tell us what you know about Oak Park and uh, how the, the the county's approach uh, might uh, might make things a little easier for folks who live yeah. there. Yeah,
3: I mean I appreciate I, I appreciate that, and yes, Oak Park. I live in Ferndale. Oak Park is right next door, Oak, you know, you uh, know, uh, to the west. And I know the mayor and the council well there, the city manager. And you know, I will say this. Um, one of the things that I've tried to do as county executive is to have a, a, a deeper pipeline between the communities and the county. Um, there was no mechanism for folks to access programs other than just go on the website. I created what we call the community engagement area, and that is a team. And this is people who are working directly in the communities, hearing their concerns, bringing them back, and just as importantly, sharing with them the programs and services that we have. Because, frankly, I think a lot of the – we have like 250 different programs and services for our residents. I think most of them are the best-kept secrets, and they shouldn't be. And so we're, we've we got a team of folks that are actively out working in the communities, going to city council meetings, going to block clubs and chambers, and, and, and sharing what we have available and, and how to help access it. So that's, that's one way I'm, I'm attempting to address that. Hmm.
0: Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Elena in Detroit, you're up next. Elena, what's on your mind?
1: Thank you. Good morning. Hey. I just wanted to mention, um, to add back into the lexicon, the word desegregation. And the reason I mention that is because if our schools... And our housing was not segregated, we probably would have been able to have regional transit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We can't because people will not, will not accept integration. White yeah. people won't accept integration. Yeah, Elena. And I, I live in an area that is so expensive and everybody is so priced out, and the few black people that live in Corktown are being displaced. It's really a serious thing when we talk about race. And to not talk about race in housing and transportation and schools is just a huge omission.
0: Yeah. Uh, Elena, I'm really glad you called and and said that. And and I want to kind of add to that. Uh, Part of the problem in talking about these things in racial terms, in terms of desegregation, is that, you know, de jure segregation is supposed to have ended many years ago. And I think for a lot of people, they they believe that that means race doesn't matter anymore and that uh, that there are other ways we ought to be viewing these things there are other lenses we ought to be using but of course the the history of racism and and inequality has kind of set the table for what we're dealing with now there were never uh, enough counteractions to make sure that we dismantled uh, the systems that that respected um racism uh, the way that they did and so I think that's a really interesting idea that, that that you bring back into the language the the very idea of desegregation which has a legal connotation but also has a cultural connotation I think that's what you're mm-hmm. you're referring to Dave uh, what about that in the way that we talk about housing and transit and all of these other challenges not just in Oakland County but but throughout Southeast Michigan yeah, I really appreciate her bringing that up. I don't think we can ignore the fact
3: that in the 40-year history that we've been trying to do transit, that, that race and racial issues have not been a part of that. I, I think it's obvious that it has. And uh, that Oakland County has sometimes been perceived and perhaps more than perceived as an impediment in that area. So it's been very important to me to be very deliberate about uh the folks that I hire, the leaders that I bring here, uh, making sure that they're diverse, the DEI officers that I hire to make sure that, as I said before, all the programs and services are looked at through an equity lens, and that we're celebrating and talking about the diversity in this county, which is not something that's happened here before. And I think uh, it's important to do that. And I know that's not enough. But, I, you know, I, I'm trying my best uh, to bridge that eight-mile artificial geographic divide uh, and, and talk about us as a region.
0: Okay. Dave Coulter, executive of Oakland County. Always great to talk with you. Happy birthday again, and uh, <laughs> congratulations on the State of the County speech.
3: Thank you so much, Stephen. Appreciate it.
0: Okay, we've talked about the state of Oakland County. Next on Detroit Today, we're going to hear about the state of the pandemic. Cases have tumbled across the state, but Michigan Chief Medical Executive Dr. Natasha Bagnazarian says COVID is not done with us yet. Not time to go all the way back to the way we were living before all of this happened. She's going to join us next to tell us why. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. 101.9 wdet i'm stephen henderson and as always thanks for tuning in covid has collapsed here in michigan i'm going to say that again just for emphasis covid has collapsed here in michigan since the peak of cases in late january cases have dropped really precipitously Since then, and that means masks are coming off across the state, including in our schools and all kinds of other things are going back to normal. The CDC released new masking guidelines, relaxing recommendations for the vast majority of Americans. And if you go anywhere, I think, in the country right now, you notice that people are kind of acting like, hey, we really are through this and it's time to go back to life as it existed before the pandemic. But my next guest says COVID is not really done with us yet. Michigan Chief Medical Executive Natasha Bagnazarian says, before we start acting like the pandemic is over or never happened, we need to prepare ourselves for possible future surges. Dr. Bagnazarian, welcome back to Detroit Today.
2: Thanks for having me on.
0: Let's start with this. Where does Michigan stand right now in terms of, of cases and deaths. The last time you and I talked, the picture was pretty bleak, and that wasn't terribly long ago. But today, it looks really different, which I think is a reminder that things are really fluid with the pandemic, and they can change almost on a dime.
2: Absolutely. Um, When we look at the new CDC metrics, and the new metrics really take into account Um, The things we feel are most important, so not just case rate, but also strain on hospital systems. And when we look at the new CDC metrics, most of the state is in a low-risk situation, which is really good news for all of us. Um, But as you just mentioned, the pandemic is not over. And we're really trying to communicate that out to the Michigan public by talking about the COVID pandemic response um, as a cycle. And it's not so much of a, will we see another surge? Uh, It's more a matter of when will the next surge be? And we really need to start thinking that way, that this is a relatively safer time, but there are going to be some bumps ahead of us.
0: So as I said in the intro here, right now when you go out, it really feels like most people are living their lives as if the pandemic is over or as if it never happened in the first place. Do you think we're moving too fast? Do you think we're easing up too much right now?
2: Well, I think it's very important to be able to communicate to the public that this is a relatively safer time. I think that through the pandemic, we in Michigan, people around the country and public health uh, around the world have done a really great job of communicating that things were high risk. Um, and we've We have um, put out requests to use mitigation strategies. We've put out warnings that we're in a high risk period. And I think that we have to also be able to communicate when we're in a lower risk period. So I am okay with dialing down mitigation measures right now because there is less transmission going on in communities, but I just want people to understand that that will change, Um, that this is a lower risk period and so it's okay to maybe get together with family and friends, it's okay to take some um, you know, to, to remove those masks if, if people feel comfortable doing so and if they've evaluated their own risk profile, but with the caveat that things will change and we may need to dial up those mitigation strategies um, at some point in the near future.
0: So you said something there that I want to kind of emphasize, people assessing their own risk Profile, I think, is a a key part of this. So, for instance, if you're vaccinated and boosted and don't have other compromising health conditions, the decisions you make about what to do and what precautions to take might look different than somebody who maybe has not yet gotten the vaccine or didn't get the booster. And I think it's that calibration that we're counting on people to do, of course, to to keep people safe and to keep the numbers low. But I think that's also the greatest source of worry. I don't know that, that a lot of people are making those kinds of calculations. I think what they're looking at is, well, the numbers are down, hospitalizations and deaths are down, so... I'm good. I I can take off the mask. I can do all of these other things and not worry. Is that, I mean, is that one of your worries too, is that people don't perform that kind of individual assessment of of what their risk is?
2: Of course. You know, there's always that worry that maybe people will will not take into account those other factors. But Our role in public health is to give guidance um, and to give the best possible information to the public and then to allow the public to make decisions for themselves. Uh, Things have been very different in this pandemic, where um, there has been um, much stronger messages coming out from public health. And in the beginning, um, there were closures and and more stringent things than public health is used to doing. So I think we're also getting back to that, that usual model of public health, where we give the guidance the best possible information to the public and then the public is really responsible for making those decisions. And, um, decisions around masking, I think, have become a really hot button topic. And people have been asking for months now um, that that they want to have the choice to make, um, to decide whether or not to wear a mask in certain settings. And so what we're trying to do is give them the best possible information. So a few factors need to go into this. You mentioned your own risk profile. So whether you have other medical conditions, whether you're immunocompromised, the risk profile of people in your family or those around you, the type of setting that you're going into, how many people will be there, is it indoors versus outdoors, and then what's happening in your community. And I think that if we can put the best possible information out there in the hands of the public um, in this lower risk period, it just makes sense to let the public make those decisions for themselves. And again, one more little caveat We do still have some settings where we do recommend mask use. So we do recommend mask use during isolation and quarantine, when you're in a congregate setting, like a long-term healthcare or correctional facility, or um, if you're in an area with a local or federal mask policy. So there are still some caveats where we recommend mask usage, but otherwise we really want to support the public's decision as to whether or not they want to wear a mask.
0: I'm talking with Dr. Natasha Bagdasarian, the state's chief medical officer. We're talking about the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic, the plummeting numbers, really, uh, that we are seeing now in contrast to the soaring numbers that we saw earlier in the year. Uh, Give us a call and tell us how you're reacting to all of that. Are you masking still in public right now? Tell us why or why not, Uh, and give us a sense of how you are determining when it is appropriate to wear a mask or not and when you can go maskless. Uh, Tell us how you're calibrating all of the different inputs uh, during the pandemic to determine what your own personal level of confidence, I guess, in security is to to go back to life as normal. Are you eating in restaurants? Are you sending your children to school without masks, if that's allowed? Uh, What's the line that you're working with, and how do you determine where that line is right now? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Um, before we get to, to listeners, Dr. Bagdasarian, I wonder if you can talk about your sense of when another surge might be most likely and how the state will need to respond, given the comfort that people are enjoying right now, not not observing restrictions? How hard will it be next time to get people to do the things that they need to do to keep us safe?
2: Those are all excellent questions. When we look forward at, at times where we might see possible surges, we're really looking at changes in weather. So this virus really likes cold, dry conditions. So wintertime is definitely a time where we could see an increase in cases. Um, changes in um, what's happening across our state. So um, schools opening in the fall, that was a time where we've seen surges in the past. And so we could see that again in the fall of 2022. And then we also have to keep a very close eye on variants. So variants of concern um, could be another factor in a surge and what the next variant will look like, it's really hard to say. It could be something that is more transmissible or it could be something that's more transmissible and then has other characteristics that make it concerning. So it could be something that is um, able to evade vaccines better, able to evade our therapeutics. And so that requires an element of horizon scanning, which we continue to do and and looking to see what's happening in other states and other countries. We're keeping a very close eye on the BA2 subvariant at the moment and really watching how that is behaving in different parts of the world. Um, and when we do see uh, a situation that we feel is, is likely to affect our state negatively, we'll move into this readiness phase where we're really communicating out to the public that the situation is changing and that it's time to start thinking about dialing up those mitigation strategies again. Um, I think this is all about communication and just really making sure that we are um, putting those messages out there and that, and that people know what to expect. Um, rather than this sense of the pandemic is over and there's no need to worry about it. I think uh, messaging that there will likely be a surge again. um, I think the best case scenario is that we can hold it off until the fall or winter. Uh, Worst case scenario is that BA2 um, starts behaving in ways that are concerning and uh, we have to respond. And a lot of this even depends on how much, uh, vaccinating we can do during this recovery phase. Mm -hmm. So Michigan is lagging behind nationally when it comes to overall vaccine uptake, especially in communities of color, especially among younger age groups. And unless we really do a good job of moving that needle, I don't think we will be in an optimal situation for the next surge. Um, So we're really focusing on those vaccination communications during this recovery period.
0: Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to John on the east side. John, what's on your mind?
1: Well, I I still wear my mask when I go into the grocery stores and such. And uh, one of the big uh, problems with uh, our workplaces is that uh, we have huge crowds in them. And our uh, employers uh, require that you be vaccinated and or tested. And you wear a mask. And... um, I was at the music hall last night, and a lot of the audience was wearing masks. Uh, now, they don't all require them, but like the opera house, they require you to be vaccinated and masked. And it, it becomes a huge issue with both uh, patrons and employers, employees mm-hmm. uh, that don't. They hear the news, and I, I've contacted some of our local news media to say you can't just, put a blanket statement out there that you don't have to wear masks anymore. Just like you have to wear shoes and shirts, you have to
0: wear a mask. <laughs> right. In some places, you're absolutely right, John. Uh, Dr. Bagdasarian, that gets back to this question of communication, how we make sure that people really understand what the, what, not just what the rules are, but what the best practices are to make sure that, that people aren't still getting sick.
2: Absolutely. Um, So just to go through when we recommend mask use right now, we recommend masking during isolation and quarantine, we recommend masking if you're in any sort of congregate setting, so long term care, health care, correctional facilities. And we also recommend masking if you're going into a venue or an area that has a local mask policy. So if you're going to um, a a venue or a concert or some sort of event that has a mask policy, we want you to comply with that mask policy. We also want to support the choice to continue masking. So we don't want this to be messaged out that uh, we don't want you to wear a mask or please throw away your mask. That's not the message at all. Um, You might want to consider masking, as I mentioned, if you feel that you're going into a setting where the risk of exposure is high. So if you're going into a crowded indoor setting, and you think there may be a lot of unvaccinated individuals around you, and you, you would like to mask for that reason, please, please do so please make that choice. If you feel more comfortable wearing a mask, that's another reason to continue masking in certain settings. And then, as I mentioned, taking a look at your own risk profile, the risk of those around you. If you are at high risk for infection, if those around you are at high risk for infection or severe disease, please continue to mask. So um, this is we are, we are handing the decision back to the public. But again, the message is not that we want you to stop masking. It's make choices that work for yourselves and for your families.
0: Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number. Let's go to Anthony in Southwest Detroit. Anthony, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Good morning, Stephen. Um, I just think I, I don't think we'll be back to normal per se very anytime soon, in my estimation, and especially from a socio political standpoint, because I think the cat's out of the bag after this pandemic with so many things like mm. the emergency powers our government took advantage of, and uh, you know just the way. People's businesses, schools, what have it, what have you, were allowed to be closed, and the coerced medication—you know—that's a whole other discussion. And uh, and the social media censorship—I don't think any of these cats are going back in the bag, no matter what normal is.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony, I, I appreciate the call and the perspective. I'm not sure. I assume by coerced medication, you're talking about vaccines, but but certainly, Doctor Bagdasarian there are lots of things that are different about the way we live and the way we interact with each other and the way we interact with government i i wonder what you make of the especially the 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 way that government deals with and responds to something like this it we have learned a lot there there certainly have been a lot of mistakes i mean we continue to learn about the, the errors in judgment, I, I guess it is the best way to, to describe the things that happened in long-term uh, care facilities for, for older people. I wonder what you, at the state level, are thinking about, though, um, the, the lessons that are drawn from all of this and how to be prepared, I guess, for a world, like Anthony says, that just is going to look different. It's always going to look different.
2: Well, I think we have all been through a shared trauma over these past two years. I think the pandemic has been hard for um, everyone. It's been hard for people um, working in healthcare. It's been hard for people um, working in schools. Um, It's been hard for for everyone, regardless of what your uh, relationship with uh, COVID was. And um, I think that yes, Things are are going to be different. I think we're going to think about the risks of infectious diseases as a society a little bit more, but we do have to look back and really um, look at what are the lessons learned from this pandemic? How could things have been done differently and how should we do things differently moving forward? And one of the big lessons for me is um, how do we strengthen public health so that number one, the public health infrastructure workforce databases are there to be able to handle a public health threat like this in the future and then number two how do we reestablish that trust um with the public the the last caller um I could hear the the sort of distrust in his in his voice and in some of the questions he was asking and how do we build back better so that we are partners in this and so that there isn't this feeling that um That information is is inaccurate or, um, you know, conspiracy theories or that everyone is, you know, has an angle and is trying to do things for some sort of political gain. How do we build back public trust between public health and the public, Um, between our medical professionals and the public? And I think for me, that is the biggest uh, thing that I want to take from this pandemic and really um, find a solution for.
0: Yeah. Okay. Natasha Bagnazarian, chief medical officer here in the state of Michigan. Always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for coming by.
2: Thanks for having me
0: on. Take care. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to discuss the significance of the child tax credit phasing out. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.